Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Candy Montgomery? Candy Wheeler married a man named Pat Montgomery in the early 1970s. Pat was an electrical engineer at Texas Instruments, and Candy had a job as a secretary. Candy and Pat moved to their dream house in an area northeast of Dallas, Texas in 1977. By this time, they had a son and a daughter. Pat earned $70,000 a year working on radar systems. Despite living comfortably, Candy was bored with the marriage. Candy attended a Methodist church where she met a woman named Betty Gore and Betty's husband, Alan Gore. Alan was active in the church. He was personable, outgoing, and had a sense of humor. Over the course of several months, Candy and Alan developed a friendship. He spent more time with Candy than with other women at the church. He would sometimes wink at her. They would stay in the parking lot and talk to one another after choir practice. Candy wasn't sure if they had something special or if Alan was just friendly. One day during the late summer of 1978, Candy was playing on the church volleyball court when she and Alan both tried to hit the ball and bumped into one another. It was an amazing moment for Candy. She believed that Alan had a sexy smell. Over the next several weeks, Candy fantasized about having an affair with Alan. Unable to stop thinking about her odorous collision with Alan, Candy made her move one night after choir practice. She told Alan that she was very attracted to him. Alan didn't know what to make of the situation. He was stunned that any woman would find him sexually attractive. Over the next few days, Alan couldn't get Candy out of his mind. His brain was like a kid in a candy store. Alan was unhappy in his marriage. Betty would often complain about minor health problems. She had an affair when the couple lived in New Mexico, and he and Betty seldomly had sex. When they did, Alan thought of it as routine, unimaginative, and mechanical. Even still, Alan was ambivalent about the idea of an affair. About a week after the choir practice, Alan saw Candy at another church volleyball game. He said, what was it that you had in mind? Candy said, would you be interested in having an affair? Alan responded that he did not want to have an affair because it would hurt his wife, Betty 
who was pregnant. Alan kissed Candy on the lips before leaving. Alan called Candy on her 29th birthday, which was about two or three weeks since they last spoke. He asked Candy if they could go to lunch and talk about what they talked about before. The couple had a long discussion and concluded that they should think about some of the risks of having an affair so they could make an informed decision. During the next month, the couple continued with a detailed and extensive cost-benefit analysis. They agreed that if they had an affair, it would be just sex, no emotional component. Candy was getting frustrated with Alan. She started believing that if he was so tentative about having an affair, he probably wasn't aggressive enough to satisfy her desires. The couple met again at the end of November 1978. Alan's primary reservation at this point was becoming emotionally entangled. He was mostly worried about his own emotions. Candy told him, we just won't let that happen. She also said, we will always wonder if we don't do it. A few days later, Alan called Candy and said he decided to move forward with the affair. The couple developed a long list of rules and then set December 12, 1978 as the date of their first sexual encounter. Both Candy and Pat had second thoughts on that day. In the motel room, they were both awkward. Neither one wanted to make the first move. When they finally had sex, it did not last long. Candy was shocked at how clumsy and inexperienced Alan was. Even still, she was generally pleased with the encounter. Alan was overjoyed. The couple continued this arrangement over the next several months into early 1979. Alan really enjoyed their time together. In addition to the sex, he enjoyed having a break from his responsibilities. Candy was not as enthusiastic. She felt as though Alan was not improving in his performance, no matter how much instruction she offered him. Over time, their conversations started to become as important as the sex. On one occasion, they skipped the sex altogether and spent their time talking. In February 1979, Candy told Alan that she felt like she was getting in too deep. She didn't want to fall in love with him. Alan convinced her to continue the affair. A few months later, Alan temporarily suspended the affair because Betty was close to giving birth. Candy was fine with this decision for a number of reasons. One, she was tired of having sex with Alan anyway. He just wasn't good at it. Two, she was tired of getting up early and cooking lunch for their meetings. And three, she was tired of doing little special things for him, like giving him notes and cookies. She wasn't happy with her husband. She really didn't need a second one. Betty gave birth to a daughter in July. Candy and Alan resumed their affair not long after this. Alan felt as though Candy's heart wasn't in it. Sometime later, Alan and Betty went on a trip to Kansas to visit with family. After they returned home, Betty became suspicious when Alan tried to get back to work quickly. He was going to use his lunch break to see Candy. Alan called Candy and canceled their meeting. Candy was not amused. Two weeks later, Candy and Alan met again and had sex. That evening, Betty wanted to have sex with Alan, but his prior encounter with Candy meant that his batteries were running low, so to speak. It was the first time Betty had ever initiated sex. Alan was surprised. Betty was devastated when Alan rejected her. Alan and Betty went on a marriage repair workshop with their church. Apparently, it really went well. He felt as though he and Betty had a breakthrough. Candy was worried that he was going to end the affair. The next time she met with Alan, he offered a number of reasons why the affair should end, 
but he stopped short of terminating it. Candy took the initiative and ended the relationship. Candy and her husband Pat went to the same marriage retreat with the church, although their experience wasn't as positive as what Alan and Betty had enjoyed. Now moving to the timeline of the incident. On June 13, 1980, Alan left for work at about 8 a.m. and left for a business trip to St. Paul, Minnesota at 4.30 p.m. In the morning, Candy stopped by Betty's residence in Wiley, Texas. Betty let her in the house. Candy killed Betty in the utility room with an axe that had a three-foot wooden handle by striking her 41 times. Candy injured her toe in the process and fled the scene. Alan tried to reach Betty by phone, but she did not answer. He called a neighbor to check on the house, but when the neighbor knocked on the door, no one answered. Alan then called Candy, who was watching Alan's daughter, Elisa. Candy tried to reassure Alan that Betty was probably fine. Alan called the neighbor back several times, as well as another neighbor. Several of his neighbors ended up going to his house and entering through the front door, which was unlocked. The neighbors found Alan's daughter, Bethany. It was clear that she had been in her crib for a while. As one neighbor removed the baby from the house, others entered the utility room and found Betty's body. Right at this moment, Alan called on the house phone. One of the neighbors answered and told him Betty was dead from what they believed was a gunshot wound. They told him that his baby was okay. When the police arrived, they realized that Betty had been murdered with an axe. The police found a bloody footprint in the house as well. Candy was the last person who saw Betty alive, and of course, at one time, had an affair with Alan. She was arrested and charged with murder. She was released on bail and hired an attorney, who in turn hired a mental health clinician to perform an assessment. He hypnotized Candy on three occasions to extract information about what happened the day Betty was killed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. And hi, hi True Crime, Crime fans. fans. We're the co-hosts of She Goes by Jane. Every week, we'll be covering the story of a missing or unidentified woman in the United States. Stories you may have heard before. And ones whose stories didn't make it into the news. We've been covering these stories for a while, first in Amy's book of poetry, Doe, and then in Vanessa's documentary, She. But now we want to share them with you here on She Goes by Jane. And each week, we'll be joined by a special guest who will read a poem in honor of the women we talk about. Can we say who? We can say who. We'll be joined by actresses like Coco Jones and Gabrielle Ruiz. And musicians like Stephanie Quayle and Kelly Moneymaker, along with authors like Louise Penny and Catherine McKenzie. So check out She Goes by Jane wherever you get your podcasts, or check out Evergreen Podcasts and their true crime channel, Killer Podcasts. We can't wait to bring you these stories. Candy's trial started in October 1980. Here's what Candy said happened on June 13th. She visited Betty to pick up a swimsuit for Elisa, who was spending the night with Candy and her family. Betty confronted her about the affair and then retrieved the axe. The two talked a little bit more and the situation appeared to be resolved. But then Candy put her hand on Betty's arm and said, I'm so sorry. 
Betty flew into a rage and threatened Candy with the axe. Candy grabbed onto the handle, and the women struggled to get control of the axe. Betty managed to swing it and sliced Candy's toe. Candy grabbed the axe again and managed to push Betty backward onto the floor of the utility room. At this point, Candy smashed Betty in the head with the axe. Candy tried to escape, but Betty was still fighting. Candy flew into a rage and struck her 40 more times with the axe. On October 30, 1980, Candy Montgomery was found not guilty of murder. Candy and Pat moved to Georgia after the trial. They divorced four years later. Candy changed her name back to Candace Wheeler and worked as a mental health counselor in Georgia. Now moving to my analysis. Was Candy Montgomery guilty of murder? Many people believe that she was. Some believe that she was guilty of manslaughter, whereas others, including the jury, believe she was not guilty. Let's take a look at the factors both for and against the idea that Candy was guilty, starting with the inculpatory evidence. There is no question that Candy Montgomery caused the death of Betty Gore. The mechanism of death was being struck with an axe 41 times. In addition to being impolite, this is overkill. Candy lacked remorse and was described as cold and callous. Candy went to great lengths to conceal her involvement. Furthermore, when Candy left Betty's residence, she knew that Betty's daughter Bethany was in her crib. It would appear that Candy was only worried about her own well-being and not the well-being of Betty's daughter. She could have easily called the police and taken the baby out to them. It's not like the handoff would have been difficult. From the perspective of the police, it would have been like taking baby from a candy. During Candy's versions of events, she claimed that Betty said, quote, I have got to kill you, unquote. If Betty was really trying to kill her, it's very unlikely that she would state her intent in so many words in the middle of a life and death struggle. James Bond villains may announce their intentions like this, but normal people do not. I think holding an axe would accurately communicate that sentiment without words. It wasn't like Betty was inviting her to a lumberjack competition or something. Moving to the exculpatory factors, Candy's affair with Alan ended in October 1979. Candy had another affair with a different man from early November to mid-December 1979. It seemed like Candy had moved on. She really didn't have that strong of a motive to kill Betty. Under cross-examination, Candy did not change her story at all. She didn't contradict anything that she said earlier. The axe belonged to Alan Gore. He testified the axe was stored in his garage, and Candy had never seen it. When considering the evidence, do I think that Candy was guilty of murder? Yes. I believe that she was guilty in reality and guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. I could have understood it if the jury came back with voluntary manslaughter, but an acquittal is difficult to justify. I think the trickiest part of this case is the fact that the axe belonged to Alan. I don't think that Candy went to that home knowing that she would be able to find some type of weapon. She probably didn't intend for anything to happen. It may very well be that Betty introduced the axe into the equation, like Betty started it, but Candy was going to finish it. If Betty did attack Candy, it is true that Candy had no duty to retreat. She certainly had the right to defend herself, but why would she leave a baby in the house, and why would she conceal the crime? This makes no sense. One would think that she would have called for help right away. After all, she was the victim of some terrible offense. Here are my thoughts on a few items that stood out to me in this case. Item number one. Betty and Alan planned their infidelity very carefully. 
They did not rush into it, and they thought through just about every detail. They even developed a list of rules that they were going to follow. A few examples. Too much emotional involvement ends the affair. If either party wanted the affair to end, it would end, no questions asked. They would split any expenses, like the cost of a motel room. They would only meet on weekdays when their spouses were working. And Candy would be in charge of arranging the motel room and fixing lunch. Despite all their planning, they failed to keep their contact casual. Affairs are dangerous for a few reasons, not the least of which is that the partners get pulled in by emotions. This would not be the first couple who thought they could beat the system. Item number two, Candy was highly motivated by sex. She was concerned that at age 28, she was running out of time to experience incredible sex. She told friends that she was looking for fireworks. I guess she wanted explosions, noise, a lot of colors, and the smell of something burning. It's not really clear. She also said that she wanted transcendent sex. This means that she wanted something beyond the range of the physical human experience. She set the bar pretty high there, essentially demanding a firework-toting deity as a lover. She may have developed these high standards from reading romance novels when she was younger. Interestingly, Candy went from being frustrated with her husband, Pat, to being frustrated with Alan, so at least her experience with men was consistent. Item number three, one of the hardest obstacles for the defense to overcome in this case was the fact that Candy struck Betty with an axe 41 times. This problem was addressed by the three different mental health professionals who testified at her trial. Two diagnosed her with dissociative reaction, and the third, the prosecution expert, said Candy was fine. There was no mental disorder. The first clinician who diagnosed her with dissociative reaction said that Candy induced amnesia to suppress rage. She was like a spectator as she struck Betty with the axe. Candy knew what she was doing, but could not stop. Her deceptive behavior afterward was somehow connected to this dissociative reaction as well, which seems amazingly convenient for her. The second clinician also came up with dissociative reaction, but offered a different conceptualization about how the condition functioned. He said that Candy developed dissociative reaction when she was six years old and retained it through the present time. She was excessively concerned with what other people thought of her, and she suppressed anger. The condition was not caused by the incident with Betty. This clinician tried to explain Candy's overkill this way. When Candy was four years old, which is before she supposedly had dissociative reaction, she was injured by a broken glass jar and taken to the emergency room. Her mother told her to shush, like she said, shh. Her mother said, what will they think of you in the waiting room? During the attack, Betty tried to quiet Candy down by doing the same thing. This activated the memory from when Candy was four years old and led Candy to losing control. Essentially, she was motivated by self-defense initially, but then mental illness took control of Candy. As I mentioned, the prosecution expert said that Candy had no mental disorder, but he was so unprepared, he didn't appear credible. The jury probably put more weight on the other two experts for this reason. Both of the dissociative reaction conceptualizations are ridiculous. Many scientists don't believe that dissociation is real, much less that it is capable of turning people into axe-wielding automatons. Dissociation cannot be proven or disproven. It should never be part of a trial. In addition, 
one could argue this defense was really just about claiming a particular stimulus, in this case someone saying shh, could cause uncontrolled rage. What killer would be unable to use this defense? This is available to anyone who's ever been told anything more than once. Now moving to my final thoughts. Candy Montgomery literally walked out of a courtroom a free woman after killing somebody with an axe and concealing her behavior. Mental health professionals were largely to blame for this. Instead of making accurate statements, they offered fantasy stemming from their gullibility, lack of critical thinking skills, and overconfidence. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.